welcome back to another episode of the Northeastern Data Initiative podcast. My name is Eric Weiss, and I'll be your host for today. Joining me today is an esteemed guest, Dr. Sandy Pentland. How are you doing today, Dr. Pentland? Doing fine. Of course. Um, and so just to start off today, would you mind introducing uh, yourself and, you know, all the work that you've been doing? Well, I'm a professor at MIT, um, helped uh, set up the Media Lab uh, at MIT, and now we have a group that is across all the different parts of MIT called Connection Science. And then I do stuff on the side. So, for instance, uh, I lead discussions at Davos, one of which uh, uh, was the progenitor of the European data regulations, GDPR, the privacy. I uh, do experiments in how uh, we can know more about uh, social systems uh, and did a series of experiments called Data for Development, which were incorporated into the UN's uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So I'm on the board of directors of the Global Partnership for uh, Sustainable Development Data there, which is about you know, having evidence-based development. And um, I advise, you know, consumer union and uh, I run a group, uh, I co-lead a group for the IEEE, uh, which do, you, do your listeners know what the IEEE is? Please expand. Okay, so the IEEE is uh, essentially all the, the computer science and AI people in the world. It's like uh, half a million people around the world. So a group called the uh, Council for Extended Intelligence, which thinks about uh, standards for ethical AI and ethical uh, data use. Fantastic. Well, it seems like you got just enough on your plate to keep you busy for a couple lifetimes. So it sounds like a <laughs> definitely a busy it's time. It's actually all the same. So, <laughs> Well, what, if you do what you love, it's never a day of work, I suppose. Um, so could you expand a little bit on the MIT Connection Science um, and how it kind of arrived at its current mission statement? I set up Connection Science after we had the sort of initial uh, discussions that led to GDPR and as um, some of the original data for development uh, contests, which are sort of broad meetings of often hundreds of people, hundreds of groups, thinking about how we can use uh, data to you know, track sustainability and inequality and those sorts of things. And um, it seemed like it was something that required having resources from all over. Uh, so it should be all parts of MIT. And it should be focused on uh, the private safe use of data and the use of that to build uh, better governance. Um, it happened at the same time I was working with David Lazar, who's faculty at Northeastern, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and we came up with this idea of uh, this science called computational social science. And he had a very famous paper now in, in science, the journal Science, and uh, essentially kicked off this area of asking, can we actually have data about how everybody lives and and be able to have really much more objective measurements of the things that we care about, sustainability, uh, inequality, poverty, etc. 
And, uh, and David is a, originally in political science, and so he continues that way, and he runs a big group at, at Northeastern. And I set up Connection Science to do the similar sorts of things with a slightly different focus at MIT. One of the things I did, which in retrospect was uh, a great idea, is I took over a part of the MIT that uh, created large-scale open source systems. It was called the Kerberos uh, Consortium. And they developed systems that does, oh, what, 85% of all the authentication in the world. What I was interested in is, is using that skill set and the connections to be able to uh, get to the next level. You know, how do we handle data? How do we do AI? Things like that. And so uh, they've come with me. So you talk to uh, Thomas Harjono. Uh, Steve Buckley is, is another one. And, uh, and we're off to the parties helping nations and businesses uh, reach a more sort of ethical, effective way of uh, using data, using AI, and helping governments and multilaterals to be able to uh, keep track of whether their policies are actually working. Yep, it's one thing to come up with it, and especially with something as big as GDPR, it's the execution that comes down to, you know, how it's going to perform. Yep. Um, so you talked a lot about, you know, data and, and how much data we're coming into now is obviously more than we've ever had before. Could you give us maybe a little insight into the current state of data security? Well, the, the sort of core thing uh, is an analogy I like to give, which is, you know, let's look at the military. So along about 1500, they discovered that sticking your military behind a wall with a moat around it was not a good idea. And the reason was is somebody would always leave the back door open. Uh, sometimes it was by intent, sometimes it was by accident. Uh, and that's the state we're in with data and uh, those sorts of things. Is if everybody makes these data lakes, which is a horrible idea because all of a sudden uh, the bad guys know where to go. 70% of data breaches are due to human error, intentional or not. And you need to do what the military did, which is defense in depth. Leave data where it's collected by the people who had business collecting it, know it, ask them questions, don't move the data. So it's sending algorithms to the data instead of sending the data to some central place for algorithms. And that does a bunch of things. One is, is there's no copies of data. There's only one copy of the data. And that's in the hands of the person who had permission to collect that data for some particular use, like cell phones, so that your cell phone works, right? Okay. Um, a second thing is, because this is a question and answering system, it's all encrypted and so forth, but now you can see who's asking what questions and what the answers came back. And, and you can tell, first of all, it's the right person asking legal questions. And second of all, you can see if there's anything that's going wonky about it. So you can audit the use of data, which is part of GDPR. Um, if you put all the data in one spot and there's some guy running algorithms in midnight, you can't really tell what they're doing, right? And you don't need a Trojan horse just to get in if someone just leaves their laptop open. I, yeah. I, it's, def, it's definitely a, a great point, a great analogy also. And so 
you know, you've done a lot of work in this space, uh, specifically with data cooperatives. So can you touch a little bit on uh, what a data cooperative really is and like how it fills that role? So GDPR, privacy regulation, gives you some ownership rights about data about you. But it's actually not very useful in many ways because it doesn't really benefit you. Um, great, so I can get a copy of my data. I can have something to say about it. It's just really complicated, though, so people don't bother. And having data that you contributed, a copy of it, doesn't really help you very much. Uh, and so the even at the very beginning, there was a, a discussion and a realization that ownership rights are just the first step. And, and the best analogy is probably with money, you know? So at some point, you know, probably in the 17, 1800s, it became common for people to be paid in money. Uh, and they had to stick it under their mattress. That's the sort of state we're in with the data. It doesn't do you any good, really, and it could be stolen and things. But uh, what ended up happening is, is that groups of people, agricultural cooperatives, laborers, uh, cooperatives, began forming the very first uh, small consumer-oriented banks. So not for the business people, for the average people. And, um, and that was the beginning of modern banking. So they had an institution which didn't own their money. It managed their money for them. Okay. Now that's evolved in various ways which may not be so good today. But um, you can see the same thing about labor unions. In the sort of around 1900, big corporations were exploiting workers. Workers banded together and said, well, we're going to control our labor and have cooperative bargaining with the big companies. And that was the birth of a lot of the labor regulations as well as labor unions. And we need the same thing with data. There's all this data. Uh, I now have a legal right to it. Uh, at least to get a copy of it, but I can't do anything. On the other hand, if I had a cooperative, like a everybody in my neighborhood deposited their data, not give their data away, but just deposited in one place, we could ask questions like, um, you know, how many people have gotten COVID in my particular neighborhood? How many of them also had diabetes? If it's a very high number, Maybe what you want to do is focus on the diabetes as a way of diminishing the impact of, of COVID. But people don't know. Schooling, crime, policing, nobody knows what's going on in their neighbor neighborhood. They know maybe city statistics. But basically, we're in a situation where uh, we don't know enough to be able to govern ourselves on a community basis, okay? We're all sort of shut out, us, us poor citizen types. And, and co-ops are the way to go, one way to go for that. Legally, those are called trusts, data trusts, you'll see that also, because it's a trust in the sense that it is legally obligated to represent you. It's not, it's owned by you, right? It, it's, it, often they're governed democratically, um, but it is a fiduciary, so it's, it's supposed to represent you and your interests. And this is a way we can begin putting our data to use, uh, you know, taking control of it and getting the sort of services that we want. Now, 
one thing that is a sort of a distraction, people talk about, oh, I want money for my data. But if you take the entire uh, advertising area and you divide it up by the number of people, you get a couple hundred bucks a year. It's not nothing, but I would rather have my kids be healthy than get a couple hundred bucks. I mean, maybe I can get both, but but to do that, I have to have data from my local public health units, not through the government, but what we collect, because I don't trust them necessarily, right? And I want to be able to go to them and say, look, all these people, they're all getting sick from X. What's going on, right? And so have that sort of data-driven argument with the various parts of society, hospitals, policing, justice, etc. I saw a bit of your work. Um, I'll reference it a couple of times, uh, but we'll talk about it later. It, you have a new work in progress book, The New Digital Economy. Uh, and um, I, I saw a bit about the power of data for urban development. And could you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, in that same vein, um, how that can be a powerful technique to bring about just real change in, in a community? Well, if you think about, um, say, a typical uh, underserved community, right, they don't really know what their situation is. You know, where do people work? How are the kids doing in school? Uh, even sort of systematic transportation that they have. Um, if they had data about where people in the neighborhood worked, played, how much money they made, how many people were sick, how much money, uh, you know unemployment there was, how the kids were doing in school for their neighborhood, then they could discuss and figure out what to do. Okay. We've done a lot of research in this area and asked, well, what could they do? Turns out that you could do a couple of things. One is you can figure out uh, whether the transportation system uh, that the city put in place is serving your community correctly. Right? Because currently you don't really know. Um, you could figure out what stores would make the, the community more vibrant serve people better, bring people to spend dollars in your community. You could figure out what jobs would be useful to have in your community uh, so that, that people can switch jobs uh, more easily. Turns out if you have lots of job types that share the same, roughly the same skills, that workers can move very easily between jobs. And what ends up happening is their salaries go up. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Yep. So, so we have recipes, and it's in the book. Um, so, building a new economy, MIT Press. You can find it. It's online. It's free right now. Um, we have recipes for what you ought to do to bring more money into your community. That's pretty interesting. We can even help individual entrepreneurs figure out what sort of stores are likely to be successful and where they ought to be. We can figure out what sort of skills your community needs to have um, much more labor mobility, the ability of laborers, uh, of workers to move around. We can figure out um, basically a lot of things that have to do with making the place more healthy uh, and, and vibrant. And 
Um, so there's recipes for that in the book and the methodology of doing it. And basically, it has to do with communities capturing their own data mm-hmm. and being able to put that to use. Um, one of the things people come up with is, well, if we try and help businesses and things come here, won't there be gentrification? And the answer is yes. So one of the things we have is a uh, alliance of law schools. It's at law.mit.edu that I helped set up. And, and we're looking at how do you make contracts, investment contracts, where instead of somebody outside of the neighborhood getting rich, the people in the neighborhood can get rich. How does that work? Well, instead of paying rent, you own the building. That's an example of something. Instead of having some big company put a store in there, you can figure out how to get financed and start your own store if you're entrepreneurially oriented. In terms of things like schooling, you can figure out what really needs to happen uh, and what's not happening. Currently, you know, neighborhoods just don't know what the situation is, and they don't have any sort of way of getting advice about what should help them get better. So let's go back to the money analogy. Imagine that, uh, you know, there were no uh, investment vehicles and banks wouldn't take your money. And and so what would you do with your money? Well, you could go, you know, play the lottery or stick it under your mattress. That's sort of where we are right now. And, And what there needs to be is is a little more structure to help people know what their situation is and what's likely to to help them improve their lot. Beautiful. And I love this analogy to the money system. I, I know that the, you know there are a lot of in, innovations and in, uh, other uh, upcoming technologies in blockchain and different things that are expanding the horizons of our digital economy now. Uh, be able to kind of touch on, you know, what are those innovations? How is blockchain kind of changing the way we see the digital economy? So today, um, and I'll go back to the sort of the finance system, really a patchwork of things. Um, you know, the IRS does one thing, MasterCard does another thing, the finance, you know, finance guys do yet another thing. It's, it's just this sort of mess. As a consequence, uh, well, people who want to cheat have a lot of options for cheating because there's a lot of holes in the system. It's never one thing. You can't see what's going on. What that means is that in the U.S., um, there's something like half a trillion dollars a year in tax avoidance because people just sort of don't declare it in the right way and there's no way to audit it. So there you are. Half a trillion dollars is real money. Um, that's same law as we have right now. That's just being able to have a consistent way of doing financial transactions. And of course, the data ecosystem is an incredible mess. All these people own data. There's a couple of big companies that dominate it. Uh, the normal citizen has no access to this, no ability to use it. Uh, government doesn't have the ability to have access to it and use it. Um, and so what we're seeing, first of all, is uh, new data architectures. So we developed something called open algorithms that keeps, uh, it's this defense in depth. You don't move data around. You have questions and answers. And, and we got Fidelity Investment and um, the 18 largest banks in the U.S. 
to adopt that sort of framework to be able to move your retirement and other money around like that without sharing personal data. So that's really good. And then we've just helped the Swiss set up a thing called Swiss Trust Chain, uh, which is the next step beyond uh, this, this thing we did with Fidelity. Uh, and what it is, is it's a blockchain system. Uh, I don't really like to call it blockchain because it's nothing like, like Bitcoin. It, it's a distributed ledger. It's a way of making sure all the parties that are involved get the same sums and see, uh, see what's happening the same way. So there's ledgers that everybody has and they have to agree. IBM makes the most popular one. You know, it's very energy efficient, etc. But it's much more secure. And what it does is, instead of having just the internet, which is a communication medium, it's being a layer on top of that, which is a transaction medium. So with the internet, I can send you a bill, but I don't know if you got it, right? You can send me payment, uh, but if you just do it on the bare internet, you have no idea whether I got it. Somebody could steal it. Right? So imagine a, a, a layer on the internet, a transaction layer called the interledger, uh, which allows you to do business, enforce contracts, own things. Uh, and it's, it's uniform so that it's not this patchwork of systems where there's lots of holes, uh, you know, ordering things, getting things delivered, paying for things, etc. Taxes all happens on the same protocol. And what that does is that makes tax avoidance a lot harder, but it also makes knowing logistics chains. So where, where did your stuff come from? Who made it? What did they make it with? Becomes much, much easier. And you can begin looking at things like, you know, are, is this community in financial trouble or not? Because it's all on a uniform uh, platform. Uh, now, all of it's encrypted, so it's not like anybody can look. But if you have the correct permissions, you can then audit anything you want. And it's that transparency which really makes it re revolutionary. Transparency and auditability. Mm. It's like, you know, okay, we're not only going to have that sort of be uniform, we're going to be able to check. <laughs> Did you use the data right? Did the money go where it was supposed to do? Did the tax get paid? And it's not humans checking anymore. It's are computers checking. So, so one of the ways to describe this is it gets to be like smart money. The money knows what it's supposed to do and what it's not supposed to do because it has a little algorithm built in there. And people talk about fairness and bias. So one of the things you can do is you can audit it to see if it's doing the right thing. And actually, we've done stuff like this for several countries now uh, to make sure that their social payments are fair and, and other sorts of things, because often they're not. And the way you tell if things are fair or biased uh, or effective is you have to be able to audit them. Right? And so that's what we do. We put audit systems in place for countries to be able to tell if their systems are, are doing what they intended. Connection science has definitely looked the mark in, in many economies around the world, you know, looking to digitize and take it to the next level. 
Uh, you touched on Switzerland. Could, maybe could you touch on um, a m- more recent activity in uh, the Bahamas, I think, right? In which, sir? In the Bahamas. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we, we, um, we've helped uh, uh, both the Bahamas and Bermuda to spin up a central bank digital currency. So, so what um, our role mostly was making sure that it was secure, that the digital IDs worked, and the authentication and stuff like that was was good. So, the idea of a, a digital currency, a central bank digital currency, is this is a national currency. It's not like Bitcoin or or Ethereum, which is is sort of by the people but not regulated. Um, and what it allows you to do is it allows you to move money around in a much more efficient way, uh, but also an auditable way, uh, so that tax avoidance and things like that become much, much harder. One of the worries with it, of course, is is that it's the government spying on you, right? Uh, but uh, again, the way you do that is you have something where uh, the government doesn't hold all of the permissions except by order of a court, and you can see because of the way the the platform is developed, who is asking what things, who's looking at what, right? So that you know that you can check that the courts and the government are doing the right thing. I remember uh, being impressed some years ago in the country of Estonia, which is the first country to set up such a system. And uh, I was with uh, the national CTO. Uh, they have a CTO, that's pretty good. And uh, we were in a restaurant, and he said, look, whipped out his laptop and said, this is my medical record. This is the only copy of my medical record. Right? And I can see every single person who has looked at my medical record. You can't look at it without getting logged, right? Every person who's looked at it and what their, mo- their permissions were, like what did they look at it for? And he said, look, since we put this in place, we've had zero instances of people stealing medical data and misusing it because you can't touch it without getting logged, right? You're you're going to get caught the moment you try and do something that doesn't fit. Um, And people love the system as a consequence. They also do their taxes this way. People love it because there's no more arguing with the government. You know, if you pay something, it says it right there. They can't say, oh, we didn't get your paycheck, your, your, your check, right? If you're owed something and you haven't got it, it says it right there, right? So, so people love it. Um, obviously, it can be abused, so it needs some oversight. Um, uh, but, you know, at least it's auditable, so you can tell what's happening. Well, it sounds like a fantastic innovation. And, uh, and going off of that innovation in... Uh, your own projects, you have, you know, many here, connection science and abroad, but um, I'd love for you to touch on uh, your project called TradeCoin and, um, you know, what is your mission there? What do you, what problem are you trying to solve? So TradeCoin um, was sort of an answer to um, Bitcoin and Ethereum and an answer in the sense that it was pretty clear that, um, Governments and large banks and things like that were not going to do much more with uh, these unregulated systems, except maybe a little bit of speculation on the side. 
you needed to have something that says, if I put my money in, I can get my money out. Okay? And so we developed a blockchain architecture called TradeCoin. Um, and <laughs> ironically, the one of the very first implementations of it was Facebook's Libra, um, <laughs> which is a very practical system, except the governance is crazy. So when we developed it, we thought of it as something that could be used by sovereign wealth funds and retirement funds who have an obligation to look 30 years out into the future and be very stable. And if Libra had been run by those sorts of people, it would have been a fantastic innovation. Uh, instead, it's sort of a crash and burn. Yeah. Um, but not because of the system, because of who's in charge, right? And, and so um, what we now see is that systems like uh, in places like Singapore, Switzerland, and increasingly nations around the world are using the basic architecture uh, to think about these more secure, auditable, transparent platforms for money, for uh, uh, trade, for all sorts of digital things. And, and so it's a, really intended to be a, uh, a reference architecture. And that's what we do. We build reference architectures. We don't build turnkey systems. I mean, we're a university, for God's sake, right? <laughs> we spin off companies, you know, uh, but uh, uh, it's not us doing it. We give them the reference architecture and then they go play. Right. Well, yeah, TradeCoin seems to be more of a, a true mission rather than, you know, a speculative investment like a, a Bitcoin, something like that. And with that said, like, what does the future of, of TradeCoin look like uh, from your perspective? Well, um, actually, there's a, another little story uh, with it, which is uh, a friend of mine uh, went to the meeting of central bank uh, uh, leaders in Jackson Hole. And she came back and she said it was appalling. These guys had no idea how the economy really worked, uh, about people's retirement savings, about how the, you know, and they're talking about negative interest rates and crazy things which they could probably do but would be disastrous and so we thought well the problem one of the problems is that these few central bankers have much too much power and if you look at the international monetary fund and reserve currencies and things like that you see there's really just you know the u.s europe uh, and a little bit of china those are really the only players that means they have power to determine all sorts of stuff about the economy. So, well, that doesn't seem right that they they could sort of like push the rest of us around. Couldn't we put together a currency that would be run by many governments, many organizations like retirement funds that represent people and are much more interested in the people coming out okay and maybe not so interested in uh, the federal balance sheet coming out okay. Okay? And that's what TradeCoin is. TradeCoin is a way to put together assets, not necessarily just money, but all sorts of assets, to make a stable coin that can be used as a reserve currency. And uh, it's, it's still a vision, but we see the beginnings of it in many different places. People are basically using it. 
to to sort of get out from the the unfortunate uh, uh, motions or actions of things like the IMF. I, I would love to, you know, continue to talk for maybe two, three more days at least. But um, I know our, our audience has loved our conversation so far. Where can they go to learn more about you and uh, the work that you're doing? Well, connection.mit.edu is a good place to start. There's papers, there's white papers. Uh, like any sort of academic thing, it's not entirely up to date. Apologies. <laughs> um, there's the new book that we just put out through MIT Press called Building a New Economy. Uh, like I say, it's free online. Um, and uh, enjoy, and we'd be interested in seeing what we want to help people do stuff with it. That's the whole point. I can attest it was a great read. Absolutely. Oh, good. Oh. <laughs> well, Sandy, it was fantastic to have you on. Um, Sandy is one of the most cited computational scientists in the world. He's been named uh, some of the top data scientists by Forbes. And uh, truly, you're a humble guy. And the conversation has been uh, truly a blessing. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you. Very kind. <laughs> Making me blush. <laughs> <laughs>